Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Federal Emergency Management Agency wants everybody to be as prepared for natural disasters as they can be, but FEMA's placing a new emphasis on older adults. The agency says they're more susceptible to the consequences of disasters. A new disaster preparedness guide tries to help local emergency managers and other stakeholders deal with that reality. Sherman Gillums is the director of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination, and he joins us now to talk more about the new messaging campaign. Sir, thanks for talking with us. I really appreciate you being here. Um, Get us started by talking a bit about, you know, why the focus on older adults? Why is this a a messaging approach that, that FEMA decided was important at this point? Well, FEMA has been partnering with the Ad Council for nearly two decades, and a lot of it was focused on general preparedness. And of course, older adults are a part of our community, so uh, there was no exception there. The problem is, uh, statistically, uh, older adults are more likely to be abandoned or unprepared in the event of a, of a, a weather event or extreme weather. And, uh, and a lot of this is really about, first of all, acknowledging that their needs may differ from the general population, but also hearing from them and their caregivers was an important part of this. Uh, and so we embarked upon a campaign to uh, not just recognize that their, their needs are different, but also provide uh, specific content and information that's about giving control back to older adults and their families. That's why it's called a take control campaign. And there are three aspects to it. The first aspect is to assess needs. Uh, everybody has basic needs that are similar, but when you're an older adult or when you're an older adult with a disability who may have a fixed income, uh, or live in a rural area, the needs are going to be a bit different. And, and these disasters don't care where they go. They go wherever uh, they happen to go. Uh, in this case, assessing the needs in the event someone is displaced or, or may not have a neighbor nearby, we need to know that in advance. The second part of that is making a plan. Uh, and this is where a lot of people have trouble because if you've never been in a disaster, it's a little hard to plan for something that had never happened to you. That's why ready.gov forward slash older adults has plenty of resources that are based on the experiences of people who have been in disasters in the past, many older adults. We also talked with uh, folks from the Rosalind Carter Institute, AERP, Alzheimer's Association, to truly understand what's what's at stake and, and what's at play when folks are making decisions on whether to evacuate. And the last part of it is to engage your support networks. Make sure your neighbors know who you are and what your needs may be so that in the event that the true first responders, which are your neighbors, uh, know what to do in the event of an emergency. A lot of what you just said sounds like it's generally applicable to everybody, you know, assessing your needs in advance and making a plan sounds like good advice to people of all ages. You mentioned that older adults needs differ, though. In what ways in FEMA's experience? Well, about 27 percent of older adults in the U.S. live alone, uh, many of them on fixed incomes. And when we're talking about uh, aspects of recovery, such as relocation, uh, in many cases, there may be uh, there may need to be a continuity of care aspect to their lives. How do you get access to medical care when your community has been leveled, as we saw in Rolling Fork in places in, uh, in Selma? Um, and so a lot of it is about understanding that there are two things at play. One, that their needs uh, are unique to that individual. But two, they also want some semblance of control. And a lot of times it's been taken from them as they age, but certainly in a disaster, when a lot of us feel like we've lost control, these are people, it's hard to get that back uh, when it's gone too far. So we want to put people in a position to uh, be able to speak and give voice to their needs. And older adults are not always in a position to do that, especially if they have a caretaker or a caregiver who's making those decisions for them. What What is the agency doing to work with state and locals, for example, other stakeholders at the local level to, to help spread this message and to help do some of this advanced coordination? 
Well, a major aspect of the Ready campaign, and in this case, we're getting ready for the Winter Ready campaign. It's about empowering state, local, territory, and tribal uh, emergency managers and leaders uh, with preparedness content to send down to uh, all the respective constituents and making sure that they have the they have enough information to provide people with uh, aspects of readiness that uh, if it's not there, it becomes apparent when a disaster is imminent or when it happens. Uh, in this case, we want to make sure all up and down the readiness scale that everyone is hearing the same thing, understanding the same thing. And that's what this campaign is really about, in addition to stakeholders. So it's not just the emergency responders. It's also the stakeholders who know the communities the best. And and how well is FEMA prepared um, to, to actually tackle these issues? It, it always feels like there's more natural disasters happening in any given year. I wonder if that's actually true from FEMA's perspective in 2023. And, and, and how well staffed are your teams uh, to handle these kinds of things? I'll start by saying we're as staffed as well as we need to be. Uh, no matter what's happening around society, we're always going continue, to uh, continue to make readiness a priority. What's quantitatively true is the number of billion-dollar disasters. We've already exceeded the 2022 number of billion-dollar disasters, which was a record year. And so in 2023, we have seen more disasters, but there's also been a corresponding decrease in fatalities. I can't say what that's attributed to. All I can say is we've been really proactive with our messaging. We see big storms in Guam, uh, in places like Florida, California, where people are heeding the information. Uh, there's a lot of cooperation up and down the chain. Uh, but there is, in fact, there are, in fact, more storms and, and uh, climate adaptation is the term of the day. And, and that's what we're trying to do by making citizens and, and anyone who may be in a disaster more ready and prepared for it. I, if I can reiterate, uh, accessing ready.gov forward slash older adults, uh, there's a, a, a a lot of information that applies to folks with disabilities, uh, caregivers. That's a big part of this that often gets missed. But we want to make sure that they know about that resource and uh, and make their plans accordingly. That's Sherman Gillums, the director of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. We'll post a link to the new preparedness guide at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.